Hello, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to yet another Tag One Team Talk. It's a real pleasure to be here today. My name is Preston So. I am a contributing editor to Tag One Consulting and also the moderator of today's session. I want to welcome all of our viewers and our listeners, whether you're joining us by video or audio today. Uh, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to our session today. Today is going to be a really interesting session for me personally. Um, I have long been interested in learning more about YJS, a collaborative shared editing system. And uh, joining us today to talk about it is uh, our uh, three guests who are from all around the world. I'm joining you, by the way, from Mumbai, India. And um, first and foremost, I want to introduce our special guest, Kevin Yance, who's a real-time collaboration systems lead at Tag1 and the creator of the library the framework that is all the rage that we're going to be talking about today, uh, YJS based in Berlin. Hello, thanks for having me. Also joining us today, uh, all the way from Switzerland, is uh, Fabian Franz, Senior Technical Architect and Performance Lead at Tag1 Consulting. Hey, Fabian. Hey, glad to be here again. And of course, last but not least, uh, I do want to welcome Michael Myers, our Managing Director of uh, Tag1 Consulting, joining us out of New York City. Hey, Mike. Hey everybody, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Alrighty. So um, for those of you who haven't joined us before, uh, we have several other interesting Tag1 team talks that you can find on tag1consulting.com. And uh, one of these talks actually is very relevant to today. If you wanna learn a little bit more about the foundations of real-time shared editing and some of the things we're gonna be talking about today, I highly encourage you to check out the very first inaugural Tag1 team talk available on the website about collaborative editing, and it ties directly into this. Um, by the way, just a quick note for those of you who are joining us by audio, uh, our listeners, also anyone who's joining us using assistive technologies, um, we are gonna be doing some visual whiteboarding later today during this webinar. Um, and so we do apologize for uh, uh, not having an aural component of that available. However, we're gonna do our best to talk through things and describe everything that's going on in the video as effectively as possible. Uh, and we are gonna make sure that um, uh, you're able to follow along. So uh, please be sure to check out the video if you're uh, uh, normally a listener to get the most out of the visual aids that we'll be presenting. And um, without further ado, I wanna go ahead and pass the mic over to Mike. Uh, no pun intended, who's going to talk a little bit about Tag1 and why we're here today. Awesome. Thanks, Preston. Um, Tag1 is a consulting company. We have uh, over 50 people around the world. We specialize in building mission-critical applications, highly available, highly scalable. If you have difficult problems to solve, uh, we're the organization that you partner with. Uh, we're here today to talk about real-time collaboration, uh, we think that this is an important part of the future of applications, not just web applications, but uh, mobile and desktop applications. And we're going to have a follow-up webinar on that. Um, but uh, being able to collaborate and work together with your peers on a team uh, is changing the way that we do business. You know, you spend a lot of your time in applications like Google Docs, collaborating with your team. Um, and there are a lot of single page applications, you know, things like project management Kanban boards where, um, you know, awareness, even, you know, a few seconds in delay uh, provides some friction in your workflow. And so being able to see changes in real time uh, really facilitates working together. And so Tag1 uh, with Kevin and Fabian are building more applications that do that. 
Uh, right now, we're working on an exciting internet for a top Fortune 50 company, which has collaborative shared editing, collaborative shared drawing and whiteboarding, uh, and features that enable their workforce to uh, do exactly that. Uh, and so we're interested in, in doing more of these applications um, and are excited to dig into the internals today with Kevin. Absolutely. And, you know, for, for me, this is a very interesting topic myself. Uh, uh, I've been long interested in, uh, you know, just the very unique difficulties here and the unique challenges that come about with regards to collaborative editing. Um, but first, you know, I, you know, I want to turn to Kevin a little bit and get a little bit of, of, a, of a sense from you, just, just from a personal side of things. What exactly got you interested in this whole idea of shared editing and real-time collaboration? I understand that, that you did uh, a lot of studies in Aachen. Um, can you tell me more about sort of what's, what's your background in real-time collaboration? What got you interested in it? Yeah, um, so I think it all started back in 2013. I was working, uh, I had a student worker position at the Institute for Databases and Information Systems. And I was working on, uh, on the Roll SDK, which was basically a clone of Google Wave. I don't know if you remember what Google Wave was, but I think it was a pretty novel approach to how collaboration could work. You had these uh, spaces that you could design yourself, and these spaces were collaborative by default. So for example, you could add a widget, uh, an email widget, for example, to the space and read your emails, and aside, you could have a note-taking widget, which was also collaborative. Um, so while you read your emails, you can make notes on this widget. And um, for example, if you have a group account, other people could join, also read those emails and make notes too. Like this is maybe a bad example, but everything was collaborative by default in Google Wave. And we tried to reproduce that. We had um, a similar product because um, the Wave was discontinued, unfortunately. So they tried to, um, redevelop that they had some pretty novel approaches there for example um, everything that you did there these widgets um, they they communicated directly with each other so just to give an example in, in Google Wave these widgets communicated with a server and the server would coordinate everything like sync those changes back to the other widgets and do all that stuff but in the role SDK um, everything was peer-to-peer -peer by default, so there was no notion of a server. Uh, so um, how this would work is um, you, a widget could send a message, message on a specific topic, and other widgets could listen to that topic. And how that message was propagated was actually, um, it's, it's a bit complicated. It was part XMPP protocol, it was a multi-user chat room, and it was part cross-browser, cross-window communication via special browser communication. And later, this was easily adapted to, um, to using WebRTC. Um, so um, a coworker of mine did a really cool de demo, Istvan Koren. He um, implemented, he put a Game Boy game, Mario, in one of these widgets and had the controls in the other widget. And he could control Mario from a different computer using this, the control widgets because this, it was a peer-to-peer -peer communication. So uh, back then, everything that I wanted to do was implement a collaborative text area. And I tried, like, I had very little, 
computer science knowledge, I didn't know about all these um, algorithms like CRDTs and operational transformation. Uh, back in the days, actually, CRDT was not that, uh, there was not a lot of research about that. So we just tried to plug in an operational transformation approach and found out, hey, somehow it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Like, this got me interested in this topic. Why doesn't operational transformation work in a peer-to-peer -peer manner? Uh, so I was about to start my bachelor thesis and I was still hooked on this problem and I proposed to write a framework for peer-to-peer -peer collaboration on text. And because the main application here on, in the role SDK was state sharing, I also wanted to share any arbitrary kind of state between those widgets in a peer-to-peer -peer manner. So uh, this is how I got started. It's a very, uh, uh, you know, sort of amazing background. And, and, and one of the things that you just mentioned that was very interesting, you know, I think just in light of our, of our, of our previous conversations was uh, the notion of, of, of being peer-to-peer, -peer, decentralized, right, distributed systems. Um, and I want to uh, kind of, uh, you know, sort of delve into that a little bit and talk a bit about kind of the state of shared editing back in the day. One of the things I know about operational transformation, for example, is that the biggest issue with it is that um, there's no unique identifier that is focused on every single node in uh, uh, what you're editing. And as a result, you know, you can have certain conflicts that uh, actually arise because of that. And what I understand about CRDT is that, you know, because there are unique identifiers, no matter where you insert, let's say, uh, a piece of text or perform a deletion, um, it's always going to be tied to that location, uh, sorry, tied to that single character as opposed to the location as would happen in OT. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about sort of, uh, you know, why, why is it that CRDT is, is so much more interesting and, and how does it actually benefit things like these advantages you mentioned around peer-to-peer, -peer, um, offline editing, for example, um, and especially around things like real-time synchronization, which is, I think, a very big issue for a lot of the people uh, watching this today. Yeah. Um, so the thing is, in operational transformation, it can work peer-to-peer. -peer. There have been research papers about that, but um, the advantage, in my opinion, about CRDTs in general is that the, all the operations that you define are um, idempotent and commutative by default. So this means no matter how often you apply the same operation, um, you will um, get the same result. Like you can apply the uh, same operation twice and it, the twi second time it won't do anything, for example. And commutative means um, it doesn't matter in which order you apply those operations. And this might be a good idea um, if you could use the whiteboard to give a little example. Um, I, I, when I did my own research, I saw, for example, a counter example. It was pretty good or something like that. Maybe you have something. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, I will share my screen. Um, I will basically, we wanted to get into the uh, whereabouts of the algorithm. Um, and part of the interview actually was about sharing sharing um, how this algorithm works. And I'll, let's, just, um, let's, let's just have 10 minutes and uh, talk about the algorithm. Um, maybe we can even compare operational transformation and CADTs just to give you a quick idea of what the advantages are. I don't want to say that any of them is better, but um, I know that CADTs work better for me because they are in concurrency, um, they are easier to understand, at least for me. All right. Yeah. Um, what 
kind of interesting, even though it's um, it's a little bit even more deeper topic, but are those recent research papers that directly compare those two approaches and kind of um, provide a general transformation framework where instead of working on the road rate raw data, you are transforming it into another model. And then there's more similarities to both of those technologies. I found that idea, this approach pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, definitely. Before you begin, Kevin, I just want to point out that the whiteboarding application that you're using is actually an implementation of YJS for collaborative whiteboarding and drawing. Yeah, uh, that's why I wanted to use this um, whiteboarding application. So uh, during this demo, you will see the other users, uh, the cursors and uh, other users can do stuff on the whiteboard too. I don't know if we are going to do this this moment, but I highly recommend, um, maybe I can show this to you. Uh, it's room.sh, uh, it's a really cool application. All right, um, so um, let's just dig in. Um, just, I wanna give a quick example what operational transformation is and how that works. Uh, so let's say we have uh, two users and uh, these users want to uh, do something. What you do in operational transformation is uh, you represent these, um, uh, the operations that happen as a timeline. So let's say user one, this is user one, this is user two. He wants to insert character A at position zero. This is going to be our notion for this operation. And he sent that operation to the other user. Now the second user um, also does an operation, insert character B at position zero. And now you immediately see, hey, this is conflicting. Um, there are two possible outcomes for this. Either we end up with the document AB or the document BA. Uh, in operational transformation, the transformation is really easy because uh, we just compare by user ID. So the left operation here, it was created by user one. So it gets precedence over the operation that was created by user two. So we will end up uh, so we start with the document A and we get operation B, uh, insert this at position zero because um, two is too higher than Z one, we insert B to the right of A. And uh, at the right side, we have uh, the document B and um, we see that when the operation uh, A, uh, insert A at position zero comes in, the client ID one is smaller, so we should insert A to the left of B and all the peers end up with the same document. And I think uh, this, this model of showing concurrency is uh, really helpful if you think about how two users work concurrently. You can model pretty complex cases like this. Uh, for example, what happens when uh, based on this operation, something happens here and then maybe is a third client also insert something here. So these are just some examples uh, to figure out. Yeah, I think it would be very good to show now um, the timeline part of it because uh, when now your third client with user ID3 is inserting uh, a C, at C um, but uh, also at position zero, but it comes time-wise after these other operations have completed already, um, then something else happens. Yeah, um, uh, we can like we could go over all these examples, 
Um, the thing is, and there are some examples where uh, this simple approach won't work. Though um, I, I need to mention that um, operational transformation can work in a peer-to-peer -peer manner, like even with three clients, but you need to figure out the right algorithm for that. Um, so it's, it's just important to know, like, uh, not to get lost here, but the, this, um, I, I just wanted to give you a quick overview of how, how that could work. Uh, I'm not sure if we should go into the details why um, there are some scenarios where this is complex. You know, uh, just what I meant is um, that if we now have this user three and they're inserting a C at position zero, um, but it happens at that time point um, where you're doing it, um, that we then end up with CAD like we should be because that operation comes after those other operations have completed. So there's a time component to it, not just a conflict. Component. Yeah, that, that, that's actually right. Um, you're right about that. So for example, let's say, um, um, these two operations now uh, come in before this user creates insert C at position zero. So this means uh, this operation here and this operation, they got distributed to user three and now user three inserts something at position zero. Now um, he propagates a change to the other clients and they know that this operation insert C at position zero is not concurrent anymore to the other operation. So they don't need to transform it. Uh, the peers only need to figure out uh, which operations are concurrent to each other and uh, then do some transformations. This is the general idea, like transformation by position. I, um, maybe I can, uh, oh, hello. <laughs> um, Maybe I can uh, give a quick example of how that works in YJS. Um, yeah, with CADTs. It will be really interesting to see this compared. Yeah. I agree. I agree, absolutely. Um, so in CADTs, the concurrency model um, is a bit different. And I think that this model of having like these three users and the timeline um, it's really, really hard to understand as soon as you get to three or four or five users and have these complex scenarios. It's really, like for me, it's really hard to understand those timelines. For okay. me... First huh? of all, to understand the timeline, the other part that's really hard for me about uh, operational transformation here is um, that also um, you now have to, to look at the, now there's not just three users, but four, like 12 users, etc. All those operations are like coming in and it, it just gets really complicated really fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, my first attempt of um, implementing this was um, based on my operational transformation. I tried to figure out all those cases and I tried to reproduce scenarios um, I had implemented a framework to show me uh, cases where my operational transformation approach didn't work. And it would, um, uh, it would give me those examples with sometimes seven users uh, sending like 15 operations and I needed to figure out, okay, where is the real problem here and how do I uh, really narrow the problem down to a specific thing? And then you find out, oh, okay, here's the problem. This is why this approach of operational transformation doesn't work in peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, and there's, there's another problem with peer-to-peer -peer that uh, many people are familiar with cap theory now because 
we could have a partition and then clients are collaborating outside of each other and then client three comes in and says hey um, i'm also here i've, I've done some work uh, please please take me and all the others are like hey we already cooperate on this document for five hours where have you been yeah yeah that, that's Kevin, I have a quick question. I, I know that uh, Google Docs, for example, is based on OT and it caps out at a certain number of users. Is that in any way related to what you're talking about? No, not at all. Uh, so um, in Google Docs and most other implementations of operational transformation, you always have a central server that does the transformations. So um, this is a really sweet thing um, because as soon as you have a central server you have a central point where you can do the decisions of how the document should look like and um, um, the problem becomes much much uh, easier if you have centrality so um, because now you don't have to think about the case that user one sends an operation to user three because this always happens over a server you can yeah. And, and the server, and that's a very, very important part, it can determine a global order of all operations, which is the main thing you need. Because um, then you have, have a finite state machine again and not this mix max of everything, every user doing anything. Right. Yeah, that's yeah and I think that's, that's a really great um, illustration, I think, of, of, the, of the primary benefit of CRDT, right? Is that no longer you're dealing with something that's relative, you're dealing with an absolute uh, a sense of what of, of what's changing just to bring it down to you know the level of some of our viewers who might not understand um, what that means is that you no longer rely on previous uh, uh, things going on you you can get a sense of what is going on based on that shared history as you as you both mentioned right yeah maybe we, we go over and make the whiteboard for the CDT now yeah let's do that okay um, so how I, um, I, I have a special notion of how, how I like to represent uh, the algorithm in YJS. Uh, so this is not really um, this general for CDTs. This is just specific for YJS. And I came up with the um, algorithm uh, with a visual representation of the um, concurrency model. And uh, it somehow goes like this. So we start with the document AB and then we want to insert something. For example, the orange user comes in and wants to insert character C between character A and character B. Um, and I always um, give each, each character a unique identifier. And this, uh, this identifier is known as a Lamport timestamp. And it doesn't really have anything to do with actual time. It's not like a Unix timestamp. Now it's um, it's um, just a position uh, in the system. So um, something that you usually do, sorry for that, is um, you define the Lamport timestamp as a as the user ID or client ID. So in this example, the client ID will be zero, and um, and a clock, an ever increasing clock. Uh, this is going to be one. So user zero. Oh, no, we always start at zero. Uh, we should always start at zero. That's my opinion. Computer science should always start with zero. So uh, character C is inserted between A and B, and this is the semantic of this operation. 
Now we can insert uh, another character, for example, D between C and B. Uh, this is how it would look like user zero and clock increased by one. So now we have the document A, C, D, and then B. Uh, now you can see the linked list, uh, and I make an arrow always here, um, will represent the concurrency model and the operations that happened. And now comes um, to show you how concurrency would look like in this model, um, would look somehow like this. Um, let's say the blue user comes uh, and he wants to insert um, E between A and B. And you see that this operation, insert E between A and B, it is concurrent to C and D. And uh, in order to resolve this conflict, we do the same thing as an operational transformation. We just compare by user ID or client ID. This, this client, the blue client, here will have client ID one, uh, clock is going to be zero. So um, since one is bigger than zero, we end up with the document, whoops. A, C, D, this is here, C and D, and then E because E has a, a bigger client ID and then B. So this is the same approach, uh, the same idea as an, uh, as an operational transformation, but it has a different representation of how, um, how things are inserted. You can see that instead of using absolute positions, uh, we always use um, IDs because each character is identified by a unique ID. And a really cool thing about this is if something happens um, not between character A and B, like somewhere else in the document, there is no concurrency at all because uh, there need, don't need to be um, transformations. This doesn't really affect these operations. It, just to give some examples for people not familiar with, with how, how they could visualize that, um, it's similar to how. Um, if in the internet, instead of saying, hey, uh, give me the um, server with the IP address, whatever, from Google or from TechOne, um, you could say, hey, give me that server that's three hubs away, where we have to go, go three bridges through the internet. Um, everyone would totally say, hey, that's that difficult. <laughs> Where should I know how, how that is, etc. The other part how you can think about is is your if you are familiar with object-oriented programming, I said all of those are kind of like rich objects um, in your ecosystem of um, of things. And for now, just think about them as on the same machine, kind of like processes interacting with each other, and then saying, "Hey, um, I want to be here and here." And um, now you can see every object kind of lives on itself and they can all uh, see um, and communicate with each other kind of through this, this messages. And um, with that, you can give every object in this distributed system kind of this unique address, like um, the number timestamp, like Kevin said. And with that, um, you can, can really address it and you have a unique identifier here for, for every character. And that's so, so important because regardless of where the character moved within the last 24 hours, like a client was offline for 24 hours and the, the B has moved to the very, 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 very end. 
uh, the client would still insert between A and B um, the new F client that, that really wants to do this operation because A and B can still be determined of where it should be, uh, determining also where this order here, which before was defined by the global server, uh, can be determined by the clients itself because there's a logical order to it. And that makes this um, so powerful in that, um, so instead of position-based, like um, this is here and this is here, and the position now changes from, from position two to position 20,500, um, you just say, hey, it's still B, and it still has, or it's still D, and it still has the identifier at zero, comma one, and that doesn't change. And that's so great about it. But it also brings some challenges. And yeah, for example, yeah. like uh, large text, does every character need, need uh... Yeah, every character basically needs a unique ID. And this is one of the challenges, um, like one of the problems actually in CIDTs. Um, uh, it is a yeah, good concern. Is, is this actually usable for text editing? Think about it, a book that has like uh, hundred thousands of characters and each character is an object and do that in JavaScript. This seems really imperformant, right? Um, so um, these are like some of the challenges that you need to consider when designing a CIDT. It needs to work with hundreds of thousands of uh, IDs and um, everything is an object and there are ways to optimize that. I basically had to work really closely with um, how V8 or how the JavaScript engines work in order to optimize that correctly so that objects get represented really efficiently in memory instead of like, for example, instead of using uh, objects for everything, um, you can define these, um, these objects in a way that JavaScript will represent this similar to a struct in C. So this is way more efficient than, um, than defining everything as a hash map, a hash table, because hash tables would be really overkill for this. Yeah, I think I think you both have really well as you know really well shown um, uh, the the fact that what we're really doing here is is adding a lot of complexity, um, but it's also going to make things a lot more efficient. I mean, you know, uh, uh, as you mentioned, Kevin, this notion that every character uh, uh, is an object, and you know that means every single one of those characters has to have a unique identifier. That leads to a lot of issues around memory and, and garbage collection. And, and one of the things that I'm curious about actually myself now, you know, just to bring this back to um, really you know, some of the questions that our audience is gonna have, um, one of the things that I know is a big problem for me, and I know this, this is a problem that all of us share, is that um, trying to, let's say, perform a large copy paste into um, a document in Google Docs, for example. It can take up to 10, 15 seconds for the synchronization, you know, that sync process to finally complete. Um, or when you come back online and you get that message on Google Docs saying, oh, there's a lot of changes in this document. Um, can you talk through a little bit about how uh, how you can deal with those kinds of issues using um, this kind of uh, uh, this approach with CRDT. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a really nifty trick that I do. Oh, now I created a lot of tabs. Okay, so instead, I told you that each character is uniquely identified by uh, some kind of clock vector like this, and. Most of the time, users type in a row. For example, they 
they type A and then they type B. Uh, this is going to be like this and then they type C. So two, of course. So um, they write words, uh, they write characters in a row. And especially when you insert a lot of content, this is always, um, it, it will always look like, like this. Uh, the clock will increase always by one um, with every, with every um, uh, structure or every operations that you do. So something that you can do is instead define those operations like this. Um, this is uh, client zero and clock. Sorry, I need to redo that. Okay. Okay, instead of uh, defining this operation like this, you can also define it like this. And it has a length of three. So it basically is ABC. It is, it has the clock zero, but it has three operations. And this is what I do basically in JavaScript on text objects, uh, concatenate those operations. So you don't need an object for every single character. You can actually um, have a bunch of characters um, together and um, assign, uh, defined as a single operation. But this makes um, addressing things way more complex. For example, when another user wanted, wants to insert something between uh, B and C, for example, um, you need to split up this operation into two operations and then insert it in between. So addressing is going to be more difficult, but the memory representation and also um, the, the footprint on the database where you store your document updates is going to be much lower. And this is also the way, again, sorry. It's so you're basically compressing it to a range. You're just saying, hey, um, this is kind of just increasing the order so I can just compress it to a range. And if someone even wants to change something within this large copy text, just then I split it up. Right. And uh, this that interests me personally. Um, are you also doing like compression after the fact or only when, when inserting? Like if, if someone was like um, inserting an X and then way later someone else is removing that X again. So now that phrase could be combined again. Are you doing that or? Um, no, unfortunately not. I can't, can never ever combine again because um, in CRDTs you cannot delete characters. So you okay. can uh, you can never, uh, uh, you can never actually remove uh, a character from the document tree. You can always only mark it as deleted. Um, but again, here's something really, really cool that we do. Um, just an example. Um, let's say we mark this this X as deleted. Okay, let's just say underline is deleted. Um, actually, better make a D here. So this means this X is marked as deleted. You can remove the content of that operation, which really makes sense when you have uh, concatenated operations. So sometimes you have operations that have a lot of content. When you mark it as deleted, you can delete all the content. And this really pays off, off in production, especially when you have a large insertion and then you delete this large insertion. And an example of uh, prose mirror um, or like any uh, structured text editor. So um, what we do here is we have, we have a 
a note, something like a paragraph note. Um, and in this paragraph notes, you have uh, several text notes, for example, A, B, C. When you delete the paragraph, uh, you mark it as deleted. Oh, what did I do here? Uh, you mark it as deleted. You can actually mark all these structs also as deleted, and you also don't care about the order anymore. So uh, you can actually remove these, um, these structures or these operations completely from memory. It doesn't matter because um, these uh, were children of the paragraphs that were deleted. I hope this makes sense to you. I actually don't know. <laughs> it does to me, certainly. Absolutely. Okay, so these are just uh, some ways of how you can optimize uh, a CADT implementation. Um, uh, remove content, handle memory efficiently, especially um, consider how the JavaScript um, engine works. And almost all, actually all JavaScript engines like uh, Mozilla and uh, V8 that Chrome uses and uh, Safari, um, and now also Internet Explorer is going to use V8. All these um, have a special optimization techniques that you can use to optimize um, how an object is represented in memory. If you always define an object, for example, as um, so roughly, this is how this is how an operation will look like. It has an ID. It has um, it has like um, uh, associations to the left uh, um, left and right uh, character. And um, what does it have too? It, it knows if it is deleted and um, yeah, that's basically, and it has the content, right? So uh, this is how an object is represented. And if you always define an object like that, if you never add things to that object, um, the compiler can actually figure out that, um, that this is always arranged in that matter. So we can store it as a struct in memory. So instead of ha using a hash table, that what you would normally do, like an ob objects are basically hash tables, um, you can define this, uh, the JavaScript compiler will optimize this as a struct, which will use very little memory in, um, yeah, in, in, in the browser or in, in Node.js. Oh, okay, that makes sense because the the, uh, the browser does not. So we are talking about language optimization here of of how we can optimize JavaScript itself. Because if I have an object that can grow, etc., I need a hash table with an address so I can can find it, can garbage collect it, etc. But if I have a fixed length um, data structure, then I can cast, just allocate ten thousand of that and. Um, can use them and can later deallocate them again. So yeah, that's a really neat way of optimizing the internals here. Um, let me let me quickly go again um, so that I've understood this correctly. Just for um, also explaining again for the readers. So um, when we were talking about those ranges, we were basically saying even though we are representing this as a range internally, we still know that B, for example, still has the address of zero. Point uh, comma one, um, and now you were saying that um, now I've inserted a paragraph, and now I've deleted the content of the paragraph. 
and now of all the information within the paragraph doesn't matter anymore. How does it deal if, for example, someone, an operation comes in very, very late that wants to uh, in, insert the Y between A and B, but ABC has already been deleted. How, how does it deal with that? Um, so that's a really good question. So what happens when these are marked as deleted? Um, it doesn't matter actually. Um, if they are marked as deleted, they are still there. Maybe their content also was deleted, but the operation itself, um, it is still there. And this is why concurrency um, still works because you can still address a deleted character, right? Um, you just mark it as deleted. You just say it is deleted, but it is actually still there in the internal format. Um, to the user, you wouldn't show that car character, but internally, you still need it to handle concurrency. Okay, but, but you said you had some optimizations for that, so that, for example, I'm pasting uh, the Wikipedia, <laughs> probably not the whole, but, but some very large pages, um, like the largest page in Wikipedia, and um, now I'm not using undo, but I'm just deleting all that content again, or Mike is deleting all that content again. I paste the Wikipedia again, and Mike is deleting it again. How do you deal with that case that we don't end up with 10, 100 copies of the Wikipedia? Uh, right, so um, how do I handle that? So when you delete, comp uh, there are basically two modes in, uh, in JavaScript. You can have garbage collector enabled, um, and the garbage collector actually removes stuff. When you copy paste a Wikipedia article, um, you can delete content. Um, let me give it, you an example. Uh, assuming you post this really, really, really long uh, amount of text. Uh, so it really goes on and goes on. And this is addressed by user zero, clock zero. So it is a really huge operation and it has like, let's say uh, 100,000 characters, right? Uh, when you mark this as deleted, it gets transformed to, um, you can delete the content, right? So it will look somehow like this, um, nothing, um, but you know it is a deleted, um, it is a deleted um, operation and uh, still, Line zero, clock zero, it has a length of uh, 100,000. And it is marked as deleted and uh, it doesn't have any content. So this is really cool. Now you can insert a lot of content, you delete it, and the only reminiscent, like the only um, um, uh, a thing that is still there is a single operation that is basically just three integers and a boolean that say uh, there was once a really really long insertion here but now it isn't anymore we know it is really really long but we don't know what it is anymore if so we have if yeah. I insert between not a uh, it between b, b and c which would be between one and two yeah. I mean, yeah, then it was still now, it was inserted in this whole chunk that was deleted basically. And so it could still position it relative to the other text that is around this large pasted text. Right. Um, so uh, assuming something was inserted um, before deletion between B and C, right? Like 
just um, that have a green user here and he inserts X between B and C. Now another user wants to insert the X also, but now the operation is deleted. What will happen now is this operation gets split up into two operations. Uh, the first one is uh, zero, zero, how much is this? One, two. So um, this is a deleted operation of a length of two characters. And um, now we have the X, and now we have a deleted operation uh, zero, three, or actually zero, one, so it should be two, right? I, I can't count. Counting with uh, zero is pretty hard sometimes. Uh, okay, so it is two, and it has uh, 100,000 minus two. <laughs> Just say minus two. Um, so it gets split up into two operations, basically. Uh, so, and this is the whole trick. Now we have a bit more operations, but this splitting up, um, it is really worth it if you do a lot of huge insertions and then delete all this content. Basically what authors of, um, what book authors do, or like any, uh, uh, a lot of people, even me, um, they write a huge paragraph and then they delete the huge paragraph because it wasn't good enough, or um, they move this paragraph to a different location. And what happens now is this paragraph was deleted and then inserted at a different position. Um, and this is really beneficial for YJS because um, now these, uh, the amount of text is represented way more efficiently. And even in, uh, especially in long term, this really pays off uh, with huge um, document storage um, improvements. Yeah. Uh, by Very the way, cool. Uh, another um, another um, advantage of how you can make this efficient is um, with uh, efficient encoding techniques. So um, when you um, when you send this uh, the, all these operations to the other peers, um, they really need to be represented efficiently. When you have like hundred thousand of characters, like they are not merged or concatenated, they are just um, operations. Um, if you send that as JSON objects, you would really blow up your memory buffer, right? Um, because JSON is a pretty inefficient format if you have a lot of objects. So uh, something else that really paid off is uh, binary encoding for that, because now you can, um, um, you can um, encode each integer way more efficiently. Integers in binary are represented as uh, four bits, in YJS, you can often uh, represent an integer <coughs> as three bits because of variable length encoding. This is what Protobuf, uh, for example, also does. Integers are, um, of, for example, the integer one to uh, 127 is uh, represented as a single byte. Um, other character, uh, other numbers need more space than that, but um, it can be done really efficiently. If you do that in JSON, uh, it depends only on the length because they are transformed to a string. So a, a number, a sim simple number, could be represented in 128 bytes, uh, not bytes, uh, in in like five bytes. Uh, so this is also one of the advantages of binary encoding. So I need to drink something. 
No, of course, you've been going on, you both have been going on for a long time. And, and you know, we are coming up on time. So I do want to bring things back to, um, you know, we've heard a lot about the technical underpinnings of not only CRDT and how it differs from traditional OT, um, but also some of the ways in which you've introduced these amazing efficiencies into um, YJS. Um, I'm curious, though, just to jump right back into uh, how the audience can help out and maybe contribute some of their energy towards your project. Um, first of all, what's sort of your, you know, I want to ask two questions uh, to you, Kevin. You know, what are some of the things that you're working on next? Like, what's, what are some of the things you want to add to YJS? And, um, you know, given that YJS is open source, given that we're all such uh, uh, open source fanatics here, um, how can we get involved in helping you uh, build out YJS in the future? I, I'm going to first answer your second question. Uh, I would be really happy to if uh, more people, people get involved. And it should be really easy by now to do that. There is a discussion board where you can post your projects, your, um, your additions to YJS. Um, just um, you can, YJS itself is a pretty, a pretty small library. So the YJS project, it's only 10, gig, uh, 10 kilo, kilobytes of JavaScript code. It's a very small module and it only handles the concurrency part and um, how, uh, how to encode uh, document updates. And all the rest, for example, the communication over uh, WebRTC, over WebSockets, uh, the communication over, for example, the IPFS network, uh, or um, that um, it's, it's an un another underlying communication protocol, or XMPP, like there are so many additions to YJS. Um, all these additions are separate modules. And if you have, if you are working actively with one of those projects, for example, uh, if you're if you have a lot of experience with uh, that or IPFS, I would be so happy to work with you on implementing uh, an, a communication module uh, for YJS. There are also other things, for example, the um, uh, editor support for, for example, for Code Mirror, for Ace, for Prose Mirror, for Quill Editor, for like there's so there are already a lot of existing editors that are supported by YJS as separate modules. Um, there are still a lot of editors missing. For example, I would love to have support for Draft.js and Slate. Um, or it would be so interesting to have people working on additions for YJS uh, because it is already a very modular project. Um, it would be great to see more people getting involved and writing more additions because this is what uh, will strive uh, this community. There's a this discussion board that I set up just uh, last week that we can use to uh, collaborate, uh, share knowledge. And I would really happy to, would be really happy to hear more about your experience with YJS because uh, all these um, it, uh, things that we uh, talked about in this interview and the last interview, um, they're already existing. Uh, they, they can already be used, but there's very little experience in using that. So if we have like this big, um, uh, if we could share knowledge on how to implement an actually actual product with that, that would be really great. Especially uh, when you work on peer-to-peer -peer technology, I would be so happy to work on more uh, to see YJS and more peer-to-peer -to -peer technology. Uh, the other thing, what I'm working on right now is um, actually getting uh, YJS version 13 released. Um, 
it's been a really, really long write on YJS version uh, 13. Uh, version 12 basically was uh, so good and it had so many additions that it is really hard to replace version 12. But now it is time to um, actually do that. And I, there's still some work to do, porting all the additions that were existing for YJS version 12 to 13. Um, the next thing that I would be really interested in working on is peer-to-peer um, -peer technology. Uh, adding YJS support, uh, like writing a dev module for YJS. Uh, for those of uh, who don't know, that is the peer-to-peer -peer network where, where users share documents with each other in a peer-to-peer -peer manner. It's basically like BitTorrent. Um, it, it has the same underlying technologies to look for other peers that are interested in the same topic, but um, you can make additions to a document. And there's a recent addition to the that um, network where you can have multiple users added, making additions to the same document. And in order to make that happen, you need some uh, algorithm to figure out how concurrency works in that case. And YJS would be perfect for that. So this is what I'm going to be working on next. Yeah, definitely. There's even a peer-to-peer -peer YouTube clone-like thing. It, it's kind of crazy because the data is stored like nowhere, no central server at all. You always have to wait a little bit until your video loads, but then it's coming from all over the world because everyone has a little chunk of what you're, you want to watch right now. So these peer-to-peer -peer technologies are really, really fascinating and interesting. Also speaking for the Drupal community here, um, as Tecmon still being one of the Drupal experts, obviously. Um, um, I'd really love to see if someone would be trying a SDK for four version, which all of our one million Drupal 7 sites, uh, my Drupal 7 sites as Drupal 7 maintainer. Um, so uh, the one million sites could just use and all the Drupal 8 sites, all the new ones could also. So it would be really cool if there was just like like a YJS plugin, someone sponsoring it and then then um, all of those decades before. I, I've seen how great it worked with like Prosmora. Um, if they all could be collaborative, that would be fantastic. And and also just, just as a journalist saying, um, I've seen several open source projects in my life, um, developed several of my own. There's this kind of stage where where, where you're kind of like they're going for the adapt, adoption. And if now many people would be using MyJS, would be developing apps with it, and that would be totally great in getting the feedback. It's, it's not just code contribution, it's really just this using this, giving feedback of what works, what doesn't, um, what's great, what isn't. Um, and I think this is really what, what pushes open source projects forward with kind of the first step, large adoption. And the contributors come from themselves, in my experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we can all uh, four of us on this um, on this webinar agree that, you know, YJS for me is really interesting because um, it, it is, you know, it, it is part of this revolution towards peer-to-peer uh, -peer technologies and and we're seeing a lot more of, of, of this kind of decentralization occur. Um, it's a very important trend and will have a lot of impact in the ways that we collaborate in the future. 
Um, we are out of time, but I did want to mention a couple of things. Um, you know, as uh, Kevin mentioned, uh, uh, we are looking for people to help contribute and offer their insights into how they're using YJS, how you're implementing YJS, what you're doing, and also some, some insights into uh, uh, other integrations. You know, Fabian mentioned Drupal. Uh, there's also a lot of interest in other rich text editors. I want to just call out a couple of things about YJS very quickly here. If you're interested in uh, uh, contributing to YJS or if you're interested in looking into YJS, uh, please uh, go over and visit y-js.org. Also, it's available on GitHub at github.com slash yjs slash yjs. Is that correct, Kevin? That's correct. You grab that namespace. It's a great namespace to have. Those three-letter ones on GitHub are tough to have. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I recently got that. Also, um, the, did you mention the old? Uh, uh, URL for the project. I think uh, we also have the uh, yjs.dev URL now. So, oh, okay. So this is what we are going to use now forward. All these sweet little three-letter um, domains. Yes, because adding that hyphen is so much work, right? I just want to say time. Absolutely. So yjs.dev. And I think what's interesting is I just went to yjs.dev and you actually get this really awesome live demo right on the site right there that you can take a look at. So, um, hey, I want to say thank you so much to uh, Fabian and to Kevin. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Um, all the links that we've been talking about during this uh, session are going to be available uh, in the description, um, wherever this page is. Uh, please don't forget to check out our inaugural webinar about this very topic on shared editing, um, where you can also hear more from Kevin and from Fabian as well. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about a particular topic, you want to hear more about some of the things we've been talking about today, you want to learn more about CRDT, you want to learn more about some of these uh, interesting ideas, Go ahead and shoot an email over to tagteamtalks at tagoneconsulting.com. Once again, I want to say thank you to Kevin um, and to Fabian and to Mike today. Um, we're going to post these talks, by the way, at tagone.com slash tagteamtalks. And without further ado, thank you so much. And until next time.